Turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We'll begin in a moment looking at verses 27 through 32. Luke chapter 5. Again, I said this in the prayer service, but I want to thank those of you who were praying for me while I was away in North Carolina speaking at a Bible conference at College Park Baptist Church. Had, a, I think, a fruitful time there. And I believe that, that God used the teaching and preaching to, uh, to glorify his name and to build up the saints. And so I want to thank you for your prayers while I was away. Now, just hours before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus was with his disciples. He was with them in the upper room. And then he, he walked from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that conversation, those conversations are recorded in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John. And Jesus at one point says to his disciples there in these last few hours of his life before his, before his death, he says in John fifteen sixteen, You did not... Choose me, but I chose you. And there, hearing those words, was Levi, also known as Matthew. I wonder as if as Jesus said this to him, I have you have not chosen me, but I chose you. I wonder if Levi's mind went back to the day Jesus came up to him at his tax booth and commanded him to follow him. And how true this was for Levi. He didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose him. All of grace. And this truth is explained in our catechism question. Catechism question that I think many of you know, especially you younger children and, and young people in the sanctuary, what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is a work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery and enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. And these truths, so well stated in that shorter catechism question, and so well stated by Jesus to his disciples in John 15, these truths are very well illustrated and taught in our text today. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. After this, he went out, Jesus went out, and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The grass withers and the flower fades, and the word of our God will abide forever. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would be present through your Holy Spirit in this hour, actively using your word to convict, to encourage and comfort, to strengthen our own commitment to Christ, to follow Levi's example, to learn of Jesus and his ways and join him in his work. Father, we praise you for what this short passage of Scripture reveals to us about our Lord. Father, I ask that your people would grow in their love and faith in Christ as a result of what they see this morning. Give good attention, I pray, to your people. Remove distraction from them. And I pray that you would use your word once again for your glory through the power of Christ in the Holy Spirit, praying these things in Jesus' name to you, our Father. Amen. In Luke 1, back in chapter 1, verse 77, Zechariah, the priest, prophesies about his son, John the Baptist, that John will prepare the way for the Lord. And then he says, among other things, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Right at the outset of Luke's gospel, we're being clued in to an, a, very import, a very important theme that we have seen arise many times now, and we're not even through the fifth chapter yet. In Luke 5, that knowledge of the forgiveness of sins is rapidly spreading in Galilee, in the region around the Sea of Galilee. Again and again in chapter 5, we see how Jesus deals with sinners. And you think of times we've seen this in chapter 5 yourself? Think about how many times in Luke 5 we've seen Jesus dealing with sinners. It's right in the first story, isn't it? Peter tells Jesus. You remember his words to Jesus when after the miracle of the fish and the boats start to sink down? What does, Je- what does Peter say? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And yet Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. That's how Jesus deals with sinners. And then we have the story of the man full of leprosy. Leprosy, which is itself an Old Testament image and symbol of our sinfulness. The sinfulness of all humanity by nature. And this leper who's full of leprosy approaches Jesus and Jesus makes him completely clean. 
And then in the last passage, we looked at it two weeks ago, Jesus sees the faith of the friends and the paralytic. And when he sees that faith, he forgives the paralytic's sins. And when the Pharisees condemn Jesus as a blasphemer for forgiving this man's sins, he's, he says in verse, he said to them in verse 34, so that, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Take up your bed. Get up. Go home. And the man did that. We've seen this theme arise again and again. The forgiveness of sins. It starts out in chapter 1, and it's beginning to rise up and blossom right in front of our eyes in Luke chapter 5. This is a man, this Jesus, this Christ that God has sent into the world is a man who saves sinners. Now the fullness of Luke's gospel is necessary before we really understand what's going on. Although he's writing this this to Theophilus, a man who already knew the great tenets of the Christian faith and needed to be assured of their truth. And so it's right for us who know the end of the story to look at these accounts and to learn what, who Jesus is and what he was doing in his earthly ministry. And this is happening throughout chapter 5. And, and now in the word of God before us this morning, in this passage in verses 27 through 32, the theme of the forgiveness of sins continues. The, the theme of how Jesus deals with sinners continues. Before us is yet another example of how our Lord deals with with sinful men. And what makes this encounter of Jesus and Levi so powerful is that we we, we don't just see how Jesus deals with any sinners, but the worst kinds of sinners. Before us is an example of of a great sinner. And the words of our Lord that buttress his his actions toward Levi that clarify what's going on when he calls Levi, the words of our Lord shed even greater light on who Jesus is and what his mission is to sinners, his mission in this world. And so this morning, I want you to see three things in this passage. Jesus' command, Levi's crowd, and Jesus' call. Jesus' command, Levi's crowd, And Jesus' call. First, let's consider Jesus' command. And and the text I want you to note begins with the words, After this, Jesus, or he, went out. And so Luke is tying this to the previous accounts. Lying in the background of the Levi story is the paralytic story. Luke tells us that Jesus saw a tax collector named Levi. Now, in other scriptures, we know that the other name of Levi is Matthew. And he calls him a tax collector. He draws our attention to his occupation because Levi's occupation was notorious. There are some jobs that are almost 
always tainted by sin. Not necessarily so. We know from John the Baptist that you can be a tax collector and not sin. But it's really hard to do. And you're probably not going to be a very well-to-do tax collector Tax collector, <clears throat> if you're doing it in an upright way. But it's possible. It's possible. But there are some occupations that are notorious. Notorious for their sinfulness. And such was a tax collector in the time of Christ. Tax collectors were sinners of the first order. They were well known as sinful men. We've talked about tax collectors before, but to review, Romans would hire these men to collect taxes for them. And the men, the tax collectors, would be required to pay the Roman government according to the agreement that they had made. And then they get to keep all the rest of the money that comes in. So the Romans say, yeah, we'll hire you to be our tax collector. You've got to pay us this much. Okay, says the tax collector, I'll pay you that much. And then he begins to charge more than what's necessary. Because he's, he does have to feed his, his wife and kids. But they would charge people as much. Tax collectors would charge people as much as possible. And they became very wealthy because they taxed people so much. And men rightly looked down on them, not only as complicit with the Roman government and their tax system, which the Jews hated, but men looked down on them even more importantly as slimy, compromised, greedy, thieving men. The, the families of tax collectors wouldn't have anything to do with them. Synagogues kicked tax collectors out. And when Jesus found Levi, he found him still in a state of sin. Sitting at his tax booth, Luke tells us. What the Jews felt about tax collectors was true. They really were sinful men. And this was true of Levi. And yet, Jesus saw more than a tax collector. He saw a human being. He saw a tax collector named Levi. This sinner had a name. You know every sinner has a name. Every sinner is a person. Every sinner has a soul. Jesus saw this. He saw him. He, Jesus, saw Levi. He looked at him directly, I would imagine, looked him in the eyes. And Jesus saw Levi, a man mired in sin and misery, yet a soul made in the image of God who needed rescue. He was a man as spiritually sick as the leper and paralytic were physically sick. And Jesus knew about Levi's sin. You, you would think that Jesus, being the Son of God and the Christ to come, would assume some kind of all-star team of righteous people to be his companions. After all, when Jesus saw Levi, Levi was in the act of sin. Jesus knew about his sin. Jesus saw him, as I said, sitting at his tax booth. I have to think that a flush of guilt washed over Levi's inner man as this holy teacher and powerful healer walked by and looked into his eyes. A sense of shame 
must have come over him. I wonder if Levi, seeing Jesus, remembered the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. If Peter, back in the first verses of chapter 5, if Peter lamented his sin, that he was a sinful man, we can only imagine what Levi felt when he saw Jesus, perhaps just a few moments after the encounter with the paralytic. Perhaps he wanted to run and hide. Perhaps he wanted to divert his eyes. We don't know. It could be. Maybe there was in his soul a hope that if this man forgave, as I just heard with my ears, maybe, maybe there's hope for a sinner like me. When Jesus saw this sinner, this man, Levi, he didn't back away. He reached, when he saw the leper back earlier in in the chapter, he didn't back away. You remember, he leaned out his hand and touched him. And when Jesus sees this defiled tax collector, as I said, he doesn't back away. He saw the soul of Levi, a soul that needed cleansing and forgiveness. And this time, Jesus reached out with his word. Jesus' words are so simple And their depths might be lost on us. I'm going to try to not let that happen. Jesus says to him, follow me. The words are more than an invitation. They're a command. And so I want you to see several things here from Jesus' words to Levi. These words, follow me. First, I want you to note the power of Jesus' words. I alluded to this in the introduction. Up to this point, the Lord has spoken with authority, hasn't he? To demons, to fevers, to lepers, to paralytics. He has, with his word, released a man from the guilt of his sins, as we saw in the last story, forgiving him with the power of his word. He speaks with authority. And now Jesus' word exerts itself powerfully upon the soul of Levi. Jesus says, follow me. And Levi immediately follows Jesus. Now, I don't think Levi was completely ignorant of Jesus. He had at least heard of his miracles, if not witnessed them firsthand. But I think it's quite likely that Levi had heard about Jesus, and I think it's quite likely that that Levi had heard about Jesus forgiving the paralytic sins. All this would have drawn Levi to the Savior. But the powerful, effectual calling of Christ is what Luke wants us to see as decisive in Levi. Follow me, he commands him. And Levi follows. There's power in Jesus' words. There is submission assumed in Jesus' words. Follow me, he says. There's submission there. Jesus leads and we follow. A Christian is a man, it's a woman who follows Jesus, placing himself, herself, under Jesus' authority. Jesus speaks and we obey. When Jesus is follow, we go after him. There's power, there's submission, there's forsaking in Jesus' words. There's a forsaking necessary in Jesus' command. To follow Jesus forward means by necessity that we leave something behind. 
We can't have Jesus and our tax booths and stolen prophets at the same time. Indeed, we forsake the whole world when we follow Jesus out of this cursed age into his glorious kingdom. We follow Jesus into a new life, leaving the old life behind. No turning back. And this forsaking of all that was old to follow Christ was a life commitment. It was to last his whole life. Jesus wants him to follow him ever. And that's what Levi does. He leaves everything, he rises, and he follows Jesus. There's power, there's submission, there's forsaking, there's imitation in these words, follow me. When we follow Christ, we the disciples pattern our lives after our master. Now this is necessary to what Jesus was actually calling Levi to do, to be his disciple, to learn from him and to follow him and to imitate him. But it's necessary just in the word. If you're following someone, you're taking the same path. He steps over a tree branch in the way, you step over the tree branch in the way. He takes a right at the fork in the road, you take a right in the fork in the road. There's an imitation in following our master. Jesus does not command us At the same time, in this imitation to do what he is unwilling to do, he does. And then we follow suit. To follow Christ is to imitate Christ. Power, in Jesus' words, submission, forsaking, imitation. I like the next one a lot. There's companionship in Jesus' words. Companionship. Jesus offers us himself when he bids us to give up ourselves and to follow him as Lord. He is saying to Levi, from here on, we will go forward together, you and I. You will be with me. I will be your friend. It's not a lonely thing to follow Jesus, for he is ever with us to strengthen and comfort us. And you can know that when Jesus says to you, follow me, He will ever be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He is with you till the end of the age. The words follow me call us to work with Jesus as well. That's what Jesus wants him to do as he follows, to work with him. Earlier in the chapter, do you remember Peter? Again, Jesus called Peter saying that Jesus would make him a fisher of men from here on out. As Jesus calls Levi to follow him, Levi will follow Jesus and join Jesus in Christ's messianic ministry. So there's a working with Jesus involved with following Jesus. And then finally note the grace in Jesus' words. Jesus speaks, follow me to a notorious sinner. Levi didn't deserve to be anywhere near God. Levi was a sinner caught in the act of sinning. He deserved hell. Not to be an honored disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus chose him and lovingly pursued him to bring him to the Father through his grace. Again, there was nothing lovely, no merits to attract Jesus to Levi. This is how Jesus calls us all. He doesn't call us to himself because we are righteous, but while we are sinners. 
And when Jesus calls any man or woman to himself, it is an act of pure grace. Follow me, he says. And in those words is grace to the greatest of sinners. Follow me. These words are more than a command. As Jesus speaks them, they are words of power, submission, forsaking, imitation, companionship, co-working, and grace. And these words are true for every single one of us. Jesus is calling every one of us like this. And we should follow Jesus like Levi did. It's so simple, isn't it? It makes it sound like it's an easy thing. And leaving everything, he rose and followed Jesus. And just as Levi left behind his wealth, his sinful labors, we should leave all our sin behind and go with Jesus to holiness and the glory of God. Levi left riches and worldly comfort behind to follow Jesus Christ. No sin has better profits than following Christ Jesus. And may our souls not hesitate about following Christ. We should, like Levi, follow Jesus Christ immediately and completely. Christ's grace is always better than the ease and comforts of sin. And getting up and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Learn from Jesus in this passage, beloved, to pursue sinners. Imitate the Savior. You know, it's easy for us. We live very sheltered lives, most of us. And it's very easy for us to want nothing to do with sinners. God is not calling us to join in with their sin and to have evil companions so that we can learn evil. But he is calling us to be like Christ and to pursue sinners. Levi is not too sinful for Jesus to touch with his grace. Of course, he doesn't leave Levi in his sins, as the emphasis on repentance in verse 32 makes plain. Jesus loves and befriends Levi in order to give him the grace of a changed life. And so pursue sinners, beloved. Pursue them. I know many of you do. Continue to do it. Continue to look for the Levi's that are around you, and see them, see the souls that they are, and their need for a Savior, and give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also see in this account that there is no sinner so bad off that there is no hope for him in Christ. No sinner so bad off there is no hope for them in Christ. Think of the worst sins. Think of the worst sins that are out there. An activist in the Democratic Party, homosexual or a lesbian. What is the worst sinner that you can think of? A thief? A drug user? What is it? A gambler? A person who owns casinos? What's the worst kind of sinner? Christ can save the worst of men. Forgiveness is offered even to the most despised. In the words of J.C. Ryle, quote, We can never say of anyone that he is too wicked or too hardened or too worldly to become a Christian. No sins are too many or too bad to be forgiven. 
No heart is too hard or worldly to be changed. He who calls Levi, he who called Levi still lives and is the same that he was 1,800 years ago, now 2,000. With Christ, nothing is impossible. All right, let's now look at Levi's crowd. We've seen Jesus' command. Now let's look at Levi's crowd. Verse 29, And Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Riken points out in his commentary that Levi was obviously quite wealthy. He was able to throw a big party. When Jesus called Peter... Back in the first part of chapter 5, again, I'll remind you, Jesus said to him, from now on, you will be catching men. When Jesus calls Levi, Levi immediately goes on to model for us the business of catching men. Levi throws a repentance party. I met Jesus. He has come to Jesus, and now, out of the great joy of knowing the Christ and the Savior, he celebrates. And he invites all the people he thinks should also come to know Jesus Christ. He invites other tax collectors so that they too, though lost in their sin, might know the joy of following Christ and living for God. He invites others. Luke tells us, others. Other sinners, as the Pharisees will make plain later on in the passage, so that they might know Jesus. It must have been a motley crew. From, from one perspective, it was probably the kind of party where some Christians would be very uncomfortable. After all, the place was crawling with open, infamous sinners. This party was not filled with the cream of the crop, morally speaking. And yet the real center of the party was Jesus. Jesus was reclining at table with these sinners, eating and drinking with them. Not that Jesus was indifferent to the sins of Levi's friends. He wants to rescue these sinners from their path of eternal death and condemnation. That's what he's going to go on to say. But Jesus didn't avoid this motley scene. He came to Levi's feast. Jesus is the kind of Savior who touches lepers and eats with sinners. And Levi invited these sinners because he cared about them. And Jesus was there because he cared about them as well. And how did Jesus show that he cared? He called them to repentance. That's what he'll say in verse 32. This point is very short. The lesson from Levi's crowd is that Levi does what we should do. This is what former sinners do who have come to know Jesus. They bring other sinners to the Savior. Rescued sinners introduce their sinful friends to Jesus. Let me tell you the one who has told me everything that there is to know about my soul. As my former pastor, Doug McLaughlin, used to say, we're one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Sinners bring other sinners to the Savior. Who is in your life that you could introduce to the Savior How can you be like Levi to some unbelieving acquaintance? Befriend them. Welcome them into the joy of your life, your new life in Christ. Ask them if they might study the Bible together with you. Start regular meetings with them. Reading the Gospel of John with them. Eat with them. Invite them to church. The bottom line is this. 
those who follow Jesus introduce him to other sinners. You can't help but notice what many commentators, or make the remark of what many commentators have noticed in this passage, that repentance isn't always a sour thing, as Levi makes plain. He's really happy that he's repented. Let's consider finally Jesus' call. We've looked at Jesus' command. We've seen Levi's crowd. Now let's consider finally Jesus' call. I'm using Jesus' call deliberately in a double sense. In one sense, Jesus states that he has come to call sinners to repentance. He's the one calling. But I, but I more explicitly mean Jesus' call as the Father's call that he has sent Jesus to fulfill. Jesus' call is his mission And here Jesus tells us why the Father has sent him, why he has come into the world. And that's the real sense, I mean, Jesus' call in this text, in this context. But let's consider verses, look at verses 30 through 32. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees and the the Pharisaic scribes become upset with Jesus at Levi's party. And so they pull the disciples aside to ask, and I, I don't know why the disciples, maybe they're intimidated by Jesus already. But they pull the disciples and say, why Do all of you have the audacity to eat and drink with sinners? Now, they're right about one thing. Their beginning point is correct. Jesus is doing this. He is eating and drinking with sinners. And to eat and drink with someone implies close companionship. It means that today, it meant that in antiquity. This This just wasn't done by the Pharisees. You don't eat and drink with the wrong kinds of people. The Jewish leaders meant to impugn Jesus by his scandalous associations. For them, it was was exhibit A of why Jesus can't be who he claims to be. And yet they don't realize how far they are away from God's mission in the world when they say this. Jesus' words back to the Pharisees are, again, very powerful. He is explaining to us why he has come. His association, Jesus' association with sinners is necessary because these people need him. These are the people who need him. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And these words of our Lord teach us several lessons. Again, I want to point these out to you this morning. First, Jesus is a spiritual physician. Jesus is a spiritual physician. Jesus compares himself to, to a physician who provides remedy 
to spiritual sickness. And the comparison is, is fascinating and instructive, given the interplay between Jesus' healings and his forgiveness thus far in Luke. I believe the healing of the leper earlier in this chapter was intended in a, in a parabolic way to be a demonstration of how Jesus cleanses men of sin. He forgave the paralytic first. Then he healed him, as you remember, so that all men may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So let me show you I forgive sinners by healing this paralytic. And now Jesus makes this connection explicit. If we're wondering, I wonder, are these healings trying to teach us something a little bit deeper? Now, there is a lot on the surface of the healings that's true. I'm not trying to say that's not true. Jesus is the Christ who in his kingdom removes these elements of the curse and brings healing about in a remarkable fashion, glorifying those who are dead, raising them, resurrecting those who are dead, resurrecting their bodies, bringing them into his kingdom. Ending sickness and disease almost entirely. Removing leprosy almost entirely, if not entirely, in his kingdom. This is what Jesus the Christ will do when he establishes his kingdom. That's, that's an explicit lesson from the healings. This is what the kingdom's going to be like. The sicknesses will be gone. The cancer will be gone. In large measure. I'm going to raise a people. I'm going to bring them into this, to my kingdom. And this kingdom will be far different than life, it, life is now under the curse. Unmitigated. When Satan is bound and I have established my kingdom, disease and sickness will, will, be, will be mitigated almost to the point of being eliminated entirely. And it will be eliminated entirely in the new heavens and new earth. That's, that's clear from Jesus' healings. But if we're wondering, I wonder if there's something more going on. Is this a parable as well as explicit teaching about the kingdom? Jesus is telling us, yes. I'm a physician who heals sin. If you're wondering about the leper and you're thinking deeply about the paralytic, yes, I'm a physician I'm a spiritual physician. Jesus in his saving work is like a physician for sin-sick souls. Like a physician, Jesus has come to help and to help those who are not well. And we, so we can draw this analogy further. Sin is like a sickness. So first point, Jesus is a spiritual physician. Second point, sin is like a sickness. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, sick sinners, to repentance. Sin is like a sickness. It is an urgent need. It is a life-threatening need. Sin leads to eternal death. You may not even think of yourself as sick spiritually, sin-sick, but you are so. It is one thing to have a doctor say to you that you are sick with malignant cancer. 
It is another thing entirely to have God himself declare that you are sick with sin. See your sins for what they are. They're not to be dismissed or shrugged off as light things. In the eyes of our God, they are a deadly disease that makes you spiritually sick. Sin is more than an absence of of spiritual health. It is a deformity and pollution that robs us of spiritual life. Our minds are sick with sin. We are easily deceived. Our minds have like a chronic problem. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We are hard-hearted and stubborn and slow to believe God as we ought. Our words are sin-sick. What streams out of our mouths is often sinful, slanderous, and deceitful. Our actions are sick with sin. We feel drawn to sinful pleasures and acts from head to toe. We are a sinful, sick people. Our sin is like a sickness that pollutes our whole body, like the man full of leprosy. And this this spiritual sinfulness and this spiritual sickness is not a mild sickness. We're not talking about the common cold. We need a trip to the ER, whether we admit it or not. The sickness of sin does not lead to a hospital bed, but to the judgment seat of God and condemnation. And this sickness infects us all. Every single one of us is born this way with this sickness. We're born dead on arrival spiritually. Psalm 53.3 says, There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 3.23, listen to the indictment of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus is a spiritual physician. Sin is like a sickness. Third lesson. The only remedy for this sin sickness is Jesus. He's the only physician who can heal the sickness of sin. He alone has authority on earth to forgive sin. His, and his remedy was costly. The medicine is his own blood pouring forth from Calvary's cross. There he took the sickness of sin upon himself and died the death that we deserved. I wonder, have you received this remedy? Have you come to Jesus Christ in saving faith? Have you recognized you're sick and that he's the only physician who can heal you? And have you trusted yourself to his blood and righteousness and the forgiveness of sins that comes through his name? Have you come to the physician? Have you gone to the doctor? The only remedy for sin sickness is Jesus' fourth lesson from these verses. Jesus' mission is for sinners. Jesus' mission on earth is for sinners. In this passage, Jesus speaks about why he has come. He tells us why. I've come to call sinners to repentance. You will never understand Jesus until you understand the gravity of sin and the need for the sin problem to be addressed. And God the Father sent his only Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, into the world to deal with sin. This is why he came. For Jesus to bring people into his kingdom, the great physician must heal sinners first and foremost. He must heal them of their sins. This is why he came, to bring sinners to repentance. Jesus' mission is for sinners. Fifth, Jesus did not come for the righteous. His mission is for sinners. He did not come for the righteous. He speaks this to the Jewish leaders, to the Pharisees and the Pharisaic scribes. 
He is calling them righteous. But he doesn't mean that they're actually righteous in the sight of God, let alone that they do not need him or his healing grace. By righteousness, Jesus speaks of how the Pharisees see themselves. The Pharisees prided themselves in following the law of God. They had no need for grace. They had no need for Christ and his ministry to them. And they were self-deceived. For the Pharisees and scribes thought that they had no need for a physician like Jesus. Back in chapter 3, John the Baptist condemned the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, he said. John insisted that the Jewish, Jewish leaders must themselves repent and bear the fruits of repentance. So when Jesus says that he has not come to call the righteous, he doesn't mean that the Pharisees have no need of a physician, but that he has come for those who know that they are in spiritually urgent need and seek him for grace and salvation. Jesus did not come for those who reject his grace and his kingdom and the way that he alone brings sinners into his kingdom. The Pharisees were spiritually proud and self-deceived, and so they had no room for Jesus' grace. Even Pharisees need to repent. But their blindness to their spiritual need is what made them most spiritually sick of all. One commentator pointed out the irony. The sinners eat and rejoice with Jesus in the feast while the Jewish leaders stand outside and judge. How the Pharisees thought about themselves is what showed they were spiritually sick to the worst degree. How you think about yourself is a very dangerous thing. Do you think you are less sinful than your neighbors? Do you think of yourself as righteous? Have you become so proud that you think of yourself as you think about yourself that you have forgotten the reality of your daily corruption? Do you imagine that you are righteous by your own merits in God's sight in some, to some extent or another? You see what the Pharisees are doing here. They're warning us. They're warning us, especially those of us who have gone to church all our lives or were raised in a Christian family. They're warning us of the, of the great danger of spiritual pride. Jesus didn't come for such people. They have no salvation. He only saves those who know they're sick. He came only for those who humbly acknowledge they need Christ and his grace. Otherwise, you stand apart from God and Christ and thus eternal life. But there's another way I think this message of Jesus speaks to our own time. And I'll just mention it briefly. We live in a day where people... If they hate anything, it's people, it's other people judging them or calling their life sinful. Too many people today hate the thought that they are sick. And this is what lies behind much of the moral posturing of today. This is what lies behind the calls for tolerance today. Recently saw posted, uh, written, written somewhere um, on here in town, 
um, or maybe I should say in this, in this part of the state. It's, someone had written, love yourself, love yourself. You see what's behind this is a resistance to any kind of message from God that says, no, you're a sinner. You're sick. People will not listen to anyone say anything that confronts their sin and their misery. And this is why in, in increasingly, increasingly in our culture, so many politicians and thought leaders are saying that if, if you preach the Bible and, and say that this act or that act is sin, especially the sins of the sexual revolution, you are the worst, the worst kind of sinner. Understand that Jesus is not trying to say that we stop and now stop preaching God's moral law. But he's saying for those who know that they're sick, they need him and he's the only remedy. So let's learn a sixth lesson now. The sixth lesson here from these words is Jesus' remedy for our sin is not leaving us in the sin but bringing us to repentance. Jesus' remedy for our sin is not leaving us in the sin, but bringing us to repentance. Christ wants to cure us. He's the great physician, remember. He wants to cure us by giving us a change of heart and mind about sin. You see, he wants to make us all like Levi. Not continuing in the sin. Not acting as if it's okay. But leaving our contaminated tax booths behind in order to follow him. He wants us to turn away from all our sins and to himself. He wants to bring us to repentance. He came to reorient our entire life away from this world and sin and toward God and himself. And he himself does this, I'll remind you, by calling sinners to repentance. He calls them powerfully and effectually to himself through the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just invite sinners to himself. He calls sinners to himself. And finally, I want you to see here that Jesus' mission is our mission. Jesus' mission is our mission. This is our work as well. What Jesus came to do, we are called to join in that work. Not in the same way. We can't die for sinners. But we can call sinners to Jesus Christ and join the work in that way. That's what Levi did, right? Just like Levi, who summoned his friends, his sinful friends, to follow Jesus and brought his friends to find forgiveness and new life through Christ, so must we. Jesus pursued sinners to bring them back to God. And so did Levi once he started following Jesus. So must we. This is not only the mission of Levi, the disciple. It is the mission of the church. We are here as a church, not for social work, Not for political work, but to do what Jesus did. To call sinners to the Christ, to the Messiah. To call sinners to repentance. To introduce the sick to the great physician, Jesus Christ. That's our mission. We have such a great Savior. And this passage teaches us so much about him and his calling us. He came into the world to save sinners like us. He came knowing us. He knew our sin. And yet he came for us anyway. And he could have passed us by. 
He could have ignored us, just as we ignore so many sinners around us each day. And yet he came to us, seeing our need even more clearly than we saw our needs. He has spoken to us. He's spoken to us, those of us who are in this room, with his message of grace. He has said to us, follow me. And he has powerfully persuaded us with his gracious words to join him, to follow him. And he has called us to himself to know him, to work with him, and to have him as our daily companion. And every one of us who have confessed Christ have, like Levi, gotten up and followed him. This is the kind of Savior we have. What can we say in response to grace like this? Oh, come, let us adore him. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would use this message from Luke. As awkwardly as your messenger tried to communicate these truths, I nevertheless pray that these truths would rest deeply in the souls of those who heard them and that they would follow Jesus, that they would leave behind and forsake their old life and follow the Master and join in his work. We praise you, O Father, for our Savior. We resolve again anew this Lord's Day to follow him, to obey him, to leave all behind and go where he leads us. And I pray that as we do this, you would protect and watch over us and that you would bless us as we try to be faithful to our Savior. Father, I thank you for the grace of Jesus, that he came for sick, for the sick, for me, for this congregation, for the sin sick, and that he is the only great physician who makes men well. I pray, Father, that you would... You would apply these truths to our lives in a fresh way this week, and that we would even imitate Levi, not only in obeying and following the Master, our Savior Jesus Christ, but by introducing other sinners to him and by showing them that though they are sinners, Jesus forgives the worst of sin and all of it. We pray this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.